Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. This email says, Steelers lose, Ravens lose, Bengals lose, Patriots lose, Browns win, America wins. George in Seabus. Nicely done, George. Cleveland 26, Carolina 20. And I could do an entire take on the Panthers dropping five in a row and punching their ticket to the outside looking in by going over a month without a dub. I mean, look at the way they fell apart. But you know me, I'm a glass half full guy, so instead I think I'll focus on the Browns. But before I do that, let me make sure that C-Town has got some scratch paper and a pen. Because yesterday's comeback win over Carolina just landed the Browns on the best December television graphic that they could ever hope for. You all know exactly what I'm talking about. That beautiful piece of digital real estate, digital artwork that lays out all the conference squads in the playoff picture. You know how that looks. On the left, the division leaders. In the middle, the two current wildcard spot holders. And then on the right, that long list of teams that are, say it with me right now, in the hunt. And if you're Cleveland, the three best words in December football are in the hunt. Today, I would like to officially welcome the Cleveland Browns to the hunt. Fun times in Cleveland again. Still Cleveland. Let me remind you all a few things just to maximize your appreciation of this situation. First things first, this is the Cleveland Browns that we're talking about. A team that had one win over their previous two years. A team that fired their head coach in the middle of this season. A team that's already on its 29th quarterback since drafting Tim Couch back in 99. That team is officially in the hunt. December 10th, and their playoff hopes are still flickering like a tea candle in a windstorm. They're still alive. They're in the hunt. And where there is a will, there is a way, a mathematical way. Now get out that piece of paper. Scratch this out because the Browns don't just need to run the table to get to 8-7-1. They're going to need a grip of help from a grip of teams. As an example, the Catbird Seat Ravens need to lose two out of three. The last second Miracle Dolphins need to lose two out of three. The Not Dead Can't Quit Titans need to lose two out of three. The Andrew Luck led Colts need to lose two out of three. And Cleveland's next opponent, the Broncos, they need to lose two. So you're telling me there's a chance. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. There is a chance. Hell yes, C-Town. There is a chance. You don't get put on that coveted in the hunt graphic if there is not a chance. And the Browns are on that graphic. Now, I will say this. There's scoreboard watching, and then there's scoreboard Rubik's cubing. The Browns are scoreboard Rubik's cubing the rest of the way. And that's if they continue to win. But let's not let the math get in the way of a great story. Because no matter what happens between now and the end of the season, there are some things that you cannot take away from this team. You know, like the fact that Greg, with three Gs, three Gs Williams, is now Greg with three Ws Williams. And that's in five games as head coach. He's already matched the same win total that Hugh Jackson needed two plus years to get to. 
And if this dude quits right now, he will have a better winning percentage as a Browns head coach than Bill Belichick. Three W's, Williams. Pretty good line on the resume. Not that he needs it, considering he's already got a stack of offers from teams that don't even need to bother to interview him before offering him their job. Allegedly. Hey, listen, all joking aside, I'm not saying this guy's going to get that gig full-time, but I'm saying, how do you not at least consider him full-time? They've got a winning record since he took over, which is amazing. Almost as amazing as the fact that we're even talking about this guy is a viable head coaching candidate in the NFL. Not long after it looked like he may never work another day again in the NFL. So say what you want about 3G Greg, and you'd probably be right even if you did say it, but this guy's doing a hell of a job right now. He's doing a hell of a job. They're three and two with him, his head coach. And then you've got Baker Mayfield, who became the first, check that, the third QB since 96 to spin a TD in each of his first 10 starts. But more impressive than that is getting your clock clean by Texas and then bouncing right back against the Panthers, which is what he did, and he looked great doing it. I've said it before, this team does not need to make the playoffs to prove or justify anything at all to me. They don't need to make the playoffs to justify firing Hugh Jackson in the middle of the year. That was the right move. They don't need to make the playoffs to justify taking Baker Mayfield first overall. That was also the right move. They don't need to make the playoffs this season, and they probably won't, which is fine. Because they are going to make the playoffs, and it's going to be sooner than later. Because the Cleveland Browns are still America's team, damn it. And at least for the moment, they're still in the hunt. And if you ask me, C-Town, that's a pretty good place to be. Man, that is a bitching place to be. Still in the hunt. All things considered, that is an awesome spot to be. The Cleveland Browns. America's team, Cleveland, Ohio, America's city. Cleveland. Nice win. I don't care if the Panthers are reeling. Nice win. Nice bounce back for Baker Mayfield. And 3G Greg Williams? Is there really a conversation as to whether or not that guy should get that job full time? I think there is. I don't think he'll get it, but I think there's a conversation there. They're playing hard for this guy. They're winning for this guy. Affect the head. Affect the scoreboard. Affect the bottom line. At fake K. Winslow tweets, the Browns are in the hunt? So am I. So be careful or I might accidentally shoot you. Sign Bob Knight? Fake Kellen Winslow, even for you. Bob Knight, he once shot a guy accidentally hunting. That'll happen. Especially if you hunt with Bob Knight, I guess. Stuck nuts in. We were in the hunt too. Signed, Jared, Brett, and Potsy. Hashtag Dilla. Brett Favre goes back to pass. He pumps. Hey, y'all, watch this. Now he fires. I can't believe what I'm seeing right now. We got two more. Let's go. Come on, Jared. Come on, Jared. 
Charles Davis is my guest. Charles, great to have you back. How are you? I'm doing great, Jim. Thanks for having me back. Happy holiday season to you and everyone out there. Happy holidays, my man. Great talking to you again. So you were in Green Bay yesterday to call the Packers Falcons. First off, what was your sense of the mood around the Packers players the week after the firing of Mike McCarthy? You know, Jim, it was it was an interesting deal because, you know, you've been around it a long time and you've seen it from every angle. Some guys are buoyant, joyous, right, that the coach is gone. Other guys are down and depressed because they really like that guy. I'm not going to say it was in the middle here. I think the team overall liked Mike McCarthy. And, in fact, Mike McCarthy asked uh, Brian Gutekunst, the GM, and John Phil- and, uh, excuse me, um, Joe Philbin, the interim head coach, if he could come back and talk to the team and get closure. And I really think that that was one of the best things that, that, that worked for both sides. You know, as a reporter, he got the standing ovation. And, then, and, you know, cynical people said to me, oh, well, of course they give him a standing ovation. I was like, yeah, I've been around ball clubs. If they don't like the guy, he's not getting a standing out. Sure. It's kind of like see you on down the road. So I think that that worked for both and allowed them that chance to kind of exhale and just go play. And look, they still have a minimal chance of making the playoffs, and they put it together and played well against an Atlanta team that's really going in the opposite direction. Charles Davis joining us. I want to ask you about the Falcons in one minute. What about Aaron Rodgers? How did he look to you overall? Looked like Aaron for most of the season. Um there's, there, he's got these, these new young receivers, Jim, that he likes a lot. Marquez Valdez-Scantling and Equinemia St. Brown. And he really likes what they're doing and how they're coming along. But as you've watched the Packers over the years, when Aaron does that extended play move, right, the, the extra play within the play, right, where he goes out, he moves around, he does not like to throw the ball short after he's done that. He does not like to check it down and, and get an easy completion. He throws to kill. And these young kids are still figuring out how to make themselves available downfield for a big play. And he's used to getting those. He got them with Jordy Nelson, right? He got them when Jermaine Gresham was there and running around. He, you know, and right on, he had them when Randall Cobb was fully healthy. He's not getting those now. So that's a little bit different because, he, again, he was accurate as heck. But, Jim, he only threw for 196 yards, two touchdowns. We're used to Aaron being closer to 300 every game. Charles Davis, my guest, I love the way you put that, that he's not looking to check it down. He throws to kill, which makes that record, right? And that record he broke, Tom Brady's record for most consecutive passes without an interception is even more impressive. When you think of it that way, he's not checking it down. He's throwing to kill. All right, so what about going forward? Charles Davis, my guest, what about going forward in the wake of that McCarthy firing and you look at the talent that they have, what kind of a head coach do you think makes sense for them going forward? A head coach is going to challenge Aaron, and I don't mean it the way that I'm hearing like Winston Moss gave the you know the thing about Aaron being the head coach and all that, and someone's got to hold him accountable. It's not just accountable; it's challenging him. This is one of the most intelligent guys you're going to run into. So if you go in, go at him with with some half baked stuff, he's he's got no time for that. So you've got to have that coach who can meet him that way, and have that same type of a mind, and be able to say, hey, this is how it's going to go and how it's going to work. And Aaron, Aaron will fall in line for that. That won't be a problem at all. The other part of it, though, is it's got to be team-wide. It can't just be we've got to get a coach for Aaron Rodgers. You've got to have a coach to coach this ball club because, Jim, they're not that far off. They had a bunch of injuries this year. You know what this league is like. One year you're this, the next year you're that. When you look at the guys that they had hurt this year and the youngsters who are coming along, you know that if you look at talent, they're not that far off that they can be right back with it, especially since your starting block is number 12. Right. You know, one year you're this, and then the next year you're the Falcons. 
Charles, that you might be what your record says you are, but yeah. that talent, that roster does not say the Falcons are a four-win team. What do they look like to you right now? Exactly what's going on with them? That's, that's where, where I'm really puzzled as well. Look, the talent, Matt Ryan throwing to Julio Jones, throwing to Mohamed Sanu, Austin Hooper came along at tight end, Tevin Coleman, the heck of a running back. Edo Smith gave him great play as a rookie. The defense, they lost too many guys. All right, Keanu Neal, I thought, could be a defensive MVP candidate this year. They lose him game one. Ricardo Allen, they lose. Deion Jones, they lost for 10 games right down the line. But the bottom line is they, that offensive line has got to be retooled. Absolutely has to because their offense works if you can run the football and run, throw off of play action, throw off of your bootlegs, throw off of your stretch runs. They don't have that now. No one is respecting that at all. And that offensive line just keeps getting overrun, Jim. So they've got to retool that. Alex Mack is a great starting point at center. He's still a heck of a football player. But to me, everyone else on that offensive line, they've got to take a look at. Charles Davis joining us. Actually, let me rephrase that. Jake Matthews at left tackle. Right. But Matthews and Mack, other than that, the other three, all those should be up for grabs. Charles Davis joining us. Now, if we go back a few months to before the draft, when you were looking at this group of young quarterbacks, you made the point that Baker Mayfield is a quarterback who believes, and he will get his teammates to believe as well. Now, it's one thing to do that on the college level, but what do you make of what he's done on the professional level? I mean, this is a guy who's confident with grown men, guys who are a lot older than him. What do you see in him, and how is he doing that? You know, I love that question because you know Alonzo Highsmith, Jim, right? Sure. Course. Terrific football player, terrific personnel guy. He said something to me about five years ago that, that stays with me. He calls it his home run hitter theory. And what he means is if a kid, he said, when you see these guys at a major level that hit home runs, he said, trace their career back, and you know what you're going to find? They hit home runs in Little League, too. <laughs> that's what they do, okay? So if you have that type of a player, that's what you run with, okay? Now you talk about Baker Mayfield. He inspired people when he was in sixth grade. He's inspiring people on the NFL level. Some people just have it. We call it the it factor, and sometimes that seems to be kind of a cliche. You see how that team's responded to him. It's the same way with the Browns as it was with Oklahoma, as it was with Texas Tech as a freshman, as it was in high school. Some people just have it about them, and he's one of those people. I believe that it factor, Charles. For instance, it's almost impossible to explain or describe, but you know it when you see it. And he absolutely has it. Now, you had the Cowboys-Falcons a few weeks back. And at that time, Dallas was coming off a win over Philadelphia, which started their five-game win streak. What did you see in them at that time? I saw a team that finally figured out their identity on offense and were back playing to it. You remember when they drafted Zeke Elliott at four? Right. And, Jim, you know what it's like every year at the draft. Don't draft a running back that high. But they were trying to recreate what they had with DeMarco Murray when they went 12-4. and And they had the offensive line to do it. And they did it in the first year, even with a rookie quarterback. Excuse me. They went 13-3 and and should have advanced in the playoffs, got beat by Green Bay. So they recreated that on offense. But the biggest thing is, remember all those years we were saying, boy, that Dallas defense is really struggling. Not anymore. They lead with their defense now. And if they get Sean Lee back, now you got three, three linebackers who are super quality, I don't think you take Leighton Van Der Esch off the field. I think you do that at your own peril. He is having a monster year. Jalen Smith is a tremendous middle linebacker. But that defense is really functioning. And Byron Jones has played such a great corner that doesn't get enough credit for it that people have tried to avoid him. And, Jim, all they've done is throw it to Chidobe Awuzie on the other side, who struggled earlier in the year. Guess what? All those extra targets, 
have seasoned him and made him a better player. That defense plays well. Even the one, you know, look at look at what they've done down the stretch here. They beat New Orleans Saints thirteen to ten. Who the heck would say that New Orleans would score ten points in a game? Not me. Not me. <laughs> Not me. Not me. Not before that game. You know, and trust no your point. I mean, Sean Lee, Sean Lee, right? But yeah. uh, how do you take Van Der Esch off the field at all? You you, when was the last time you saw two young backers run to the ball the way he and Jalen Smith do? It's been a long time, Jim, in terms of that, these young guys. And not only do they run to the ball, but they don't run and overrun plays either. They run with great purpose. They take excellent angles, and they don't miss tackles. And I'm going to throw this one back to you because you're a student of the game. Does Van Der Esch not remind you of an era gone by in terms of his size and ability to run as a linebacker? No doubt. Because he does not look like today's linebackers. He looks like a defensive end in today's football playing linebacker like like Mike Vrabel with the Tennessee Titans I did their preseason games and he had a I remember hearing a guy say hey coach I know you played in the league what position did you play and Mike said linebacker and they're all like what <laughs> because nowadays because of college football the defensive guy sizes sizes are cut down they're smaller he was a linebacker in the old school sense Van Der Esch looks like that old school Erlacher is a name that keeps coming up it's an apt descriptor because of size, ability to run, and the way that they make plays on the ball. Charles Davis joining us. You know, I do a podcast with Trevor Price every single week, and we talk about this all the time. You know, he last played in the game like seven, eight years ago, and even he marvels at what guys can do now athletically, saying that there's no way. And he was a really good player now, Trevor was. Yes, he was. But even he marvels, and he's not one of those get-off-my-lawn type guys. He's like, man, I am blown away by how physically freaky and athletic these guys are. I mean, the game is changing dramatically because the players are, just like that. They They certainly are, Jim, and I I do trace a lot of that to the college football system, the spread offenses. You can't have, you know, remember Terrence Cody? Remember Mount Cody playing the middle? He almost can't get on the field at all anymore in college football because we don't have first down, second down, here comes the next group because teams play so fast. Your 11 that are on the field have to be hybrids. One One snap, you're playing a strong safety. Next snap, you're playing free safety. Okay, you're playing an outside linebacker in a certain situation because you can't get off the field and change defenses. So these guys' sizes have been cut down, but their versatility has been increased. Charles, quickly, you and I have talked about your journey as a broadcaster in the past, but once you're in it and then you've carved out your career as a broadcaster, I'm curious, what's it like when you watch a game that you're not calling? (laughs) Jim, it's impossible to watch it without thinking like a broadcaster. Sure. It's absolutely impossible. I I remember someone told me that when I first got into it. They said, you'll never watch a game again the same way. And I didn't know what they meant, but I do now. You're thinking to yourself, oh, that was – yeah, okay, I get that. Oh, and you're listening to the other broadcasters, and you're not stealing as much as you're listening and learning. And I'm telling you, every game I listen to, I learn from everyone that that, that, that does a game. And you learn as much what you don't want to do as you learn as much as you do want to. And the best thing is to remember, it's got to be you saying it. It's got to be your personality. You can't be someone else because you and I both know the public ferrets that out pretty quickly. Their sniff test is, oh, that guy's a fake. That's not who he is or she, depending on who was doing the game. And that's what you have to remember. But I remember I was watching, um, I was getting ready for the Falcons this week and listening to Tony Romo and Jim Nance. And in the middle of one sequence, it was a fourth down play. Jim was talking about the analytics. And analytics say you should go for it more on fourth down. 
And Tony, before the snap, said, not if you have a bad offensive line. And the very set, very snap, they get snowed under and have a loss on fourth and one. Boom. And you're thinking to yourself, see, that's him preparing for a game, understanding teams, and being able to put himself out there. Uh, you know, and so I try and learn and, and, and take from those guys who do things like that, and Tony's not the only one. Yeah. Rookie head coach Matt Nagy had already matched the win total of the last two Bears teams. GM Ryan Pace made the move of the year when he added Cleo Mack to the Bears defense. Chicago was sitting on top of the NFC North. They were 8-4. and four. I mean, no, they weren't going to win any resume contests. But you play the games that they put in front of you, and for the most part, the Bears had played them pretty damn well. Except Sunday night was a totally different beast. The Rams were coming to town. The Rams were bringing with them that blowtorch of an offense. L.A. was 11-1. Todd Gurley was stacking TDs. Jared Goff was lighting suckers on fire. You take one weapon out of Sean McVay's arsenal, he'll replace it with another. And then you've got Aaron Donald wrecking shop in the middle of the son of bums D. So the Rams come into Sunday night looking to send a clear message of their own. That the NFC does not run through New Orleans, it runs through L.A. However, in the immortal words of Iron Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Chicago 15, L.A. 6. Now that was a statement. That was a statement win. Statement being... Don't think for one minute you're going to come into our house and play basketball on grass. The Rams walked into Soldier Field scoring an average of nearly six TDs a game. They walked out scoring six points after Chicago straight up mauled them. You don't do that to a Sean McVay offense. The Rams have been held to less than 30 only twice this year. Sean McVay has been a head coach or an old coordinator for 79 games. He had been kept out of the end zone only once before last night. And the way the Bears did it made it even more impressive. Because Cleo Mack did not ruin that game, but pretty much everybody else did. I mean, Khalil did what he does. He made some plays. He ripped a football straight out of Goff's mitts on the way to his 10th sack of the year. The other 10 dudes, though, put together a highlight reel against an offense that usually is the one that does all the clowning. First, you had rookie first-rounder Roquan Smith getting his first interception. Final substitution is needed as Goff fires over the middle and it's intercepted at the 26-yard line. Roquan Smith, the rookie from Georgia, bounced out of bounds inside the five. It was only a minute, only a matter of time before he got his. Then you've got defensive tackle Eddie Goldman putting John Sullivan on roller skates and sacking Goff for a safety. Pressure up the middle. He's going down in the end zone. Sacked by Eddie Goldman, the nose. Former first-round pick Kyle Fuller playing like the shutdown corner that he was drafted to be. He snagged INT number seven late in the third quarter. Goff has time. And then to ice it, Goff dropped back one more time, and the Bears' D ripped their fourth of the night from him. Goff, can the Rams stay alive? They can. Another interception. Will tomorrow this time. Four picks. Freaking ball hawks. Ball game. Put some respect on it. Look, the Bears earned my respect a couple of weeks back when they turned the Vikings offense inside out on Sunday night. I said it after they did it that I was never going to overlook them again. 
but no disrespect to Kirk Cousins and the dudes in the bold north. Making that Minnesota offense look bad is one thing. Making the Rams offense look that bad is entirely another. And look, I can't sit here and hype the Bears defense without at least acknowledging that the Bears offense looked a little shaky, right? Chicago ran the hell out of the ball, but Mitch Trubisky nearly threw the Rams right back into that game with three picks of his own. In other words, Trubisky kept his team in that game, but not in a good way. This guy makes plays now. Lots of plays. Plays for both sides. But lucky for him, the defense was there to bail him out. And if they're going to make any kind of run this season, that's the way it's going to be. Because Trubisky is still not a guy you can trust. Not yet. Maybe never. But with that defense, maybe it doesn't matter. And for whatever Trubisky lacks in decision-making, his coach makes up for his straight wizardry. Hell, look at the way this guy X's and O's. He can roll out that insane goal line package and bludgeon people to death. Six offensive linemen, four defensive linemen, not a single skill player on the field other than the quarterback. Santa's slay if you need it. In the backfield, Trubisky with Hicks. The fake handoff, Trubisky pops a pass down Bradley Soul. Touchdown! Touchdown Bears! And the tricks keep on coming from Matt Nagy. Another great design, and the Bears are up 14-6 here in the third. Thanks to Bears Radio. That's a play that's going to put all of Chicago in the holiday spirit because the Bears are legit. They're freaking legit after giving the hands to the Rams for 60 minutes. If you did not know before, you know now. And I'll admit it, I didn't believe until they punched the Vikings in the face. And then they did it to the Rams again last night. Statement game, statement win. The Windy City has a football team now. A dangerous football team right now. I am joined by Bob Myers. Bob, it's great to have you back. How are you? Good, man. How are you? Good, good. Bob, I have to start with this. I understand from a very good source that you were not able to participate in the annual San Quentin Hoops game this year. How is your hip these days? Jim, that's, that's a, that's, I'm glad we're leading off with the important stuff. <laughs> the hip is not, not ready yet. Hmm. I'm doing some spot shooting. You know, have you seen those uh, guns that they have at the, where they, they kick the ball back out to you? Yes. So, so I shot 100 shots. And I made 38, which, mm. you know, we don't have to take a genius, that's 38%, which is pretty much, you know, the percentage I live at. So my shot is still there, but my, my conditioning and my ability to move uh, is not there. So if I did go to San Quentin, it's not the place you want to start your comeback. Um, <laughs> it's not a good place for that. So I, I couldn't make it this year. We lost. I still have to go back and avenge that. The crazy thing is, in, in, a, in a life way, not in a basketball way, there's a San Quentin community, so I'm running into more and more people that are actually getting out, which I just never thought I'd, I'd have a network of people that were in San Quentin. You know, like I said, I grew up in a non-San Quentin-like place, so it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a part of my life that's fascinating to me even. It's just, uh, like I said, when I get back out there, you're coming with me. No, I know, and I appreciate that very much, Bob. I know it's tough for you to miss that game, but you got to take care of you first, and I know you will, and then you'll be back, and i got to get out there. I know it. At some point, i got to get out there. Bob Myers joining us. Now, Bob, something really interesting happened. Sports Illustrated named the Warriors the Sports Person of the Year this morning. It is the 65th Sports Person of the Year award, but only the fourth time that a team has been named the winner. What does the honor mean to you? Man, you know, that's something you grow up as a kid seeing who won the sports, you know, sports illustrated person of the year. And, um, it's a pretty decorated list, 
but to get it uh, from a team standpoint, it, it's fitting, really, is, is what it is, because the more you're around, whether it's our team, I think, or any business or sports, it's never one person that does it. Um, and I know that we live kind of in a society where we want to anoint you know, the star of the movie was the whole movie. Well, there's a lot of people that make a movie, and there's a lot of people that make a team. So to see our entire team get to celebrate it together and get recognized together, and not just the players but the coaches, ownership, um, everybody that's involved in, in making the Warriors what they are, is, it's a cool thing. And um, that's kind of what we try to embody here is, is that it's not, a, it's not one person. It's, it's a collect, collection of people. But um, it's going to be fun. It's uh, it's it's uh, it's hard to put into words. I actually haven't. I, Chris Ballard's an amazing writer. He wrote he wrote the piece on it. I was trying to. It's a long story, so I haven't even finished reading it myself. Bob Myers joining us. He's an excellent, excellent writer. Let me read you a quote from this. Ballard writes, quote, for sustained excellence, business innovation, and cultural impact, for injecting joy into the game and setting fire to conventional wisdom, for winning with a center built like a forward, a point guard built like a featherweight, and an offense predicated on the idea that the stars want nothing more than to pass the ball to someone who will pass the ball to someone else who might shoot it from 27 feet, for thinking the game and speaking out, and quote. I mean, I could go on, but I'll stop right there. Of all the things I just mentioned, is there any one aspect that makes you more proud than the others? You know what? I mean, I think it says it in there, Jim, but actually, and you're going you're gonna to follow this up with a question, I know, but it's actually getting along, to be honest. In this day and age, um, with, with, the, with the scrutiny, with the attention that's put upon players, they're almost brands in themselves, uh, a lot of these players, and they deserve that. I mean, that's that's um, that's something that's evolved for them, and it's it's a powerful thing. So, in in a, in a team like environment where it takes more than one person to actually succeed and enjoy the success of a teammate, my favorite by far moments when I watch our team is when they celebrate for each other. When you'll watch the players on the bench get excited for their teammates. That's by far. The, the most joy I get when I watch us is to see their reaction to someone else's success. And I think that is the challenge. That is the, the fragility of any team, any organization to recognize. And, and John, like I, I've used this quote many times, but Wooden, John Wooden, and I went to UCLA, had a great quote. It's, it's, it's amazing what you can accomplish when no one cares who gets the credit. It's such a simple thing to say, but it's so hard to do. We're so caught up in, well... You know, this guy this guy is the one that the reason they won the game and to kind of push all that aside and say we are winning together and we are losing together the the challenge of keeping that mindset and Steve Kerr does a fantastic job of it as do our players that's the real hard part it may look easy but to keep it all strung together is is the is the fascinating and I think most challenging part of all of it Bob Myers joining us. You know, Bob, when you say that, I think Steph Curry put it another way. One of the things that he said was the goal is to overcome human nature, which is obviously a profound challenge. And I think that's what you're talking about, at least in part. So then you see that moment earlier this season where Kevin Durant and Draymond Green got into it. What did you think when you saw that? I mean, was that human nature popping up? Yeah, you know, it is. And that's, that's probably a fair way of saying it. It's that um, you live in close quarters and you have different personalities, you have different emotions, you have different ways of going about things. So when you see something like that, to me, I see, and, and, and it, honestly, they're probably, as far as how people get along, they're, they're two of the closest people on the team. They really genuinely are. They, they come from 
similar back, you know, not not the easiest places. Um, they made it through a lot. They 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 had to get through a gauntlet to get to the NBA, and so they share that experience. So they're just made up differently. Um, this is a guy that wears everything in Draymond, um, just unbridled emotion, good and bad. Uh, he, he unchecked, and that's how he's lived his whole life. And we when, when, when after you know a week or so after Draymond and I talked to him, and and I, and I think for people to really understand him. They need to understand. For him, he hates to lose so much. And Jim, you've covered sports all all the time, and you've interviewed hundreds of thousands of people. There's there's a few people that literally can't stand losing so much that it makes them sometimes difficult. Um, that you can lo- list a long list of guys, and the thing that they all have in common is they usually win. They're usually winners. Now, sometimes those people. Um, are hard because they will. Th- they're the people that when they lose the Monopoly game, you know, it's on Friday night, they flip it over and throw it. <laughs> right. And you go, come on, man, it's just Monopoly. But they can't. That that's that's how Draymond's made up, and that's how he's had to be his whole life. He hasn't. He's not a seven foot, you know, power forward. He's he's been undersized. He's been scrappy and clawing. And then you've got Kevin, who's got all this natural ability and is as competitive as Draymond, but doesn't showcase it in the same way. So you've got two people that want the same thing. They just go about it differently. So, yeah, it's all part of the human nature of any relationship. And I always tell people, as much as people might want to say differently, there's a healthiness in, in saying whatever you have to say in any relationship and getting it out. And then moving on, because I more worry about when people don't talk and don't say anything, because inevitably on a team, in a friendship, in a family, in any relationship, there's, there's times where it's hard. So get that out and move past it. And I, and I honestly think we're beyond it now, and I think it'll be something that does make us stronger. I really believe that. Bob Meyer is joining us for a few more moments. Bob, I want to get you to go back to Steph Curry for a minute because Steve Kerr said that SI should just give the award to Steph Curry and call him, and and called him a short Tim Duncan. That was a quote. You know, when you look at, at Steph Curry, if you were to build a basketball player from scratch – who would completely alter the way the game of basketball is played, Steph might not be the guy you'd come up with physically. So how do you explain how he has completely changed how the entire NBA plays basketball? Yeah, well, you know what? He has, to, to, to do what he's done, Jim, and to, you, know, you, you compare him to people that have kind of shifted or evolved their sport, you have to be bold, you have to be brash, you have to be willing to kind of challenge the norm. And with his shot, simply his shot, he's changed it. His ability to shoot and, and take shots and make the three-pointer, what used to be a mid-range shot, is now a three-point shot. He, he's a huge reason for that. Um, and and, and what, what that's done is, and you look now at the game, the space to operate has become so much bigger because if you play basketball, you realize you, don't, you didn't really usually have to guard your guy 30 feet from the basket. You really didn't have to do that. But all of a sudden you're playing against this guy who shoots that shot like it's a jump shot at the free throw line and makes it. And then all of a sudden you say, well, hang on a sec. What, do I have to guard this guy out here? And, and it's worth one and a half times, a three-pointer is worth one and a half times as a two. So I really got to get out there. And if you play basketball or you watch or you've been around it, it's not comfortable being that far away from what you're trying to protect in a very simple way is the basket. That's what they teach you in your second grade. Protect the basket. Stay between your man and the basket. All of a sudden, you're 35 feet from the basket, and you got a guy that's shooting a shot and making it. And that's, not, that's uncomfortable. Um, and to see him 
go through that evolution in the way that he did, and was almost there was a subtlety to it, where all of a sudden, and for me it was a moment three, four years ago, where I, I looked at the box score, and I think he'd taken 12 three-pointers or something like that. And nobody in the media, nobody on our team, nobody, nobody thought that was a big deal at all. And then you knew. For me, immediately I thought, you know what, it, it, he's arrived. Like this, this game, him, the NBA is changing. It has changed now where you, thought, you go look back at the 90s, the 80s, and it, nobody was taking 12. Teams were taking 12 three-pointers right. a game, not one person. So for him to all of a sudden be there, and you know you've arrived when nobody's talking about it anymore. So it was almost like what he was able to do in a very Steph-like, subtle way, um, all of a sudden you woke up one day and you go, teams are shooting. This guy, Steph shot 15 threes in the game last night, or he, shot, or he made nine, no big deal, or a team is shooting 40. <laughs> Did he do it all by himself? No, there's a lot of coaches that were involved in, in that process, but um, hats off to him. I mean, you wouldn't want a better ambassador to carry that torch of kind of being in the history of the game when they look back on him. He'll get great credit for this three-point evolution, and he deserves to. Bob Myers, my guest. Bob, one more thing, and I could talk to you for an hour, but you know, you're always going to avoid taking credit. Steve Kerr is always going to avoid credit. Rick Welts is always going to avoid taking credit. But there was a moment back in 2016 after that Game 7 loss to the Cavs when you and Kerr met up right after the game. Generally, how does a conversation between a GM and a coach go in a situation like that? And then how did it actually go between you and Steve? Well, when you lose, I hope I hope anybody that's in professional sports or strives to be losing a game seven. Oh man, you talk about like a rawness to that. Um, luckily, we'd won. I can't imagine um, going through like what the Buffalo Bill, you know, losing in a Super Bowl. And at least we had a championship when we lost that one. But first, first, in these moments, Jim, in the hardest moments of your life or mine, we usually show the worst of ourselves. Uh, and I, well, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not talking hard like tragedy. I'm talking like a professional thing that happens to you that is really tough, unfair. You know, it, it hurts. Usually you lash, to be honest, you lash out at other people around you because it feels better. just feels better. And, and, and then you apologize. I shouldn't have done that. So it takes a lot of restraint in that moment to just accept losing, right? There's, there's a way to go through winning graciously, and we don't teach enough people how do you lose. How do you fail? Like, what do you do when you fa- You failed. I've failed. To get to where you are in your career, you failed, right? So what? But how did you handle that failure? So losing the game seven, you immediately feel like, I failed and I'm mad. I'm pissed. So who do I blame? Who do I get mad at? So in, I will tell you, and, I, and, and this isn't to be critical of coach-GM relationships, it's easier. There's a couple things that this usually would go. You don't, one, you don't even want to talk to your coach because it's easier to blame him for whatever. He probably doesn't want to talk to you. Um, maybe he's blaming you. The G- coach is blaming the GM for something. So most of the time, you don't even, after a game like that, you're probably going in the other direction um, because you know I'm going to say something I shouldn't say. So what happened was you check yourself first because, yeah, you, you have to acknowledge this sucks, right? That's the first part of it. This sucks. Um, so then I went back in the locker room. But, but, but here's what you have to get over. It sucks for everybody. It doesn't just suck for me. It sucks for our players. It sucks for our fans. It sucks for our owners, our coaches. So I went in the locker room, and, and before I, I just sat there, right? That's, sometimes there are no words. Sometimes you just sit down next to somebody that is in the same kind of pain you are, and you just sit there. You don't, there's nothing to say. You just lost game seven. Like, what, what, are, you, what are words going to do? And Steve says, you know, there's some things I 
before I could say anything, he said, There's, I should have done a couple things differently. And, and I said, um, first of all, for him to self, you know, be that self-aware. And, and by the way, so does every, even when you win, you could have done different. Coaches make hundreds of decisions. They're not going to all be perfect in any game. And I said, yeah, but I said, I didn't, you know, I could have given you a roster that made it a little easier for you. And those were heartfelt things. I felt that. I was kind of putting it back on me. He was kind of putting it back on him. And, and the beauty in that is, as a leader in any organization, um, this is what you lead for. This is why you're paid to lead. This is why you have the role you have, is to take on that. And then when you win, it's also to defer and deflect and say, this, because of this player or that player, but when you lose, that's when you got to own it as a leader. And so that's where Steve is so good in that before I can even, not that I would have, he just takes it on himself. Mm-hmm. And um, when you have that in a coach-gym relationship, it can really, because fl- then the relationship can last, Jim, because these things are hard to sustain. But when you have that type of dynamic and that type of human being like Steve, it allows the friendship, the relationship to, one, be fun, and two, to last a long time. So that's the uniqueness of a guy like Steve um, and our team. And I, I know we've got to go, but the, the, the next morning I meet with all the players um, after we lost Game 7, 12 hours later, and I kept waiting for Steph to blame somebody or Clay to blame Draymond for being suspended or Draymond to blame one of those guys for not shooting well enough or somebody to blame somebody. And I tell you, nobody did. And it was just them and I in a room. It would have been the perfect time to blame someone else. And I knew then, and I've told this story, I knew that in that moment that, that we were going to do some good things um, because I saw how we handled adversity. This email says, Steelers lose, Ravens lose, Bengals lose, Patriots lose, Browns win, America wins. George in Seabus. Nicely done, George. Cleveland 26, Carolina 20. And I could do an entire take on the Panthers dropping five in a row and punching their ticket to the outside looking in by going over a month without a dub. I mean, look at the way they fell apart. But you know me, I'm a glass half full guy, so instead I think I'll focus on the Browns. But before I do that, let me make sure the C-Town has got some scratch paper and a pen. Because yesterday's comeback win over Carolina just landed the Browns on the best December television graphic that they could ever hope for. You all know exactly what I'm talking about. That beautiful piece of digital real estate, digital artwork that lays out all the conference squads in the playoff picture. You know how that looks. On the left, the division leaders. In the middle, the two current wildcard spot holders. And then on the right, that long list of teams that are, say it with me right now, in the hunt. And if you're Cleveland, the three best words in December football are in the hunt. Today, I would like to officially welcome the Cleveland Browns to the hunt. Fun times in Cleveland again. Still Cleveland. Let me remind you all a few things just to maximize your appreciation of this situation. First things first, this is the Cleveland Browns that we're talking about. A team that had one win over their previous two years. A team that fired their head coach in the middle of this season. A team that's already on its 29th quarterback since drafting Tim Couch back in 99. That team is officially in the hunt. December 10th. 
and their playoff hopes are still flickering like a tea candle in a windstorm. They're still alive. They're in the hunt. And where there is a will, there is a way, a mathematical way. Now get out that piece of paper. Scratch this out because the Browns don't just need to run the table to get to 8-7-1. and one. They're going to need a grip of help from a grip of teams. As an example, the Catbird Seat Ravens need to lose two out of three. The last second Miracle Dolphins need to lose two out of three. The Not Dead Can't Quit Titans need to lose two out of three. The Andrew Luck led Colts need to lose two out of three. And Cleveland's next opponent, the Broncos, they need to lose two. So you're telling me there's a chance. That's what I'm saying. That's yeah. what I'm saying. There is a chance. Hell yes, C-Town. There is a chance. You don't get put on that coveted in the hunt graphic if there is not a chance. And the Browns are on that graphic. Now, I will say this. There's scoreboard watching, and then there's scoreboard Rubik's cubing. The Browns are scoreboard Rubik's cubing the rest of the way. And that's if they continue to win. But let's not let the math get in the way of a great story because no matter what happens between now and the end of the season, there are some things that you cannot take away from this team. You know, like the fact that Greg with three G's, three G's Williams, is now Greg with three W's Williams. And that's in five games as head coach. He's already matched the same win total that Hugh Jackson needed two plus years to get to. And if this dude quits right now, he will have a better winning percentage as a Browns head coach than Bill Belichick. Three W's, Williams. Pretty good line on the resume. Not that he needs it, considering he's already got a stack of offers from teams that don't even need to bother to interview him before offering him their job. Allegedly. Hey, listen, all joking aside... I'm not saying this guy's going to get that gig full-time, but I'm saying, how do you not at least consider him full-time? They've got a winning record since he took over, which is amazing. Almost as amazing as the fact that we're even talking about this guy is a viable head coaching candidate in the NFL. Not long after it looked like he may never work another day again in the NFL. So say what you want about 3G Greg, and you'd probably be right even if you did say it, but this guy's doing a hell of a job right now. He's doing a hell of a job. They're three and two with him, his head coach. And then you've got Baker Mayfield, who became the first, check that, the third QB since 96 to spin a TD in each of his first 10 starts. But more impressive than that is getting your clock clean by Texas and then bouncing right back against the Panthers, which is what he did, and he looked great doing it. I've said it before, this team does not need to make the playoffs to prove or justify anything at all to me. They don't need to make the playoffs to justify firing Hugh Jackson in the middle of the year. That was the right move. They don't need to make the playoffs to justify taking Baker Mayfield first overall. That was also the right move. They don't need to make the playoffs this season, and they probably won't, which is fine. Because they are going to make the playoffs, and it's going to be sooner than later. Because the Cleveland Browns are still America's team, damn it. And at least for the moment, they're still in the hunt. And if you ask me, C-Town, that's a pretty good place to be. Man, that is a bitchin' place to be. Still in the hunt.
All things considered, that is an awesome spot to be. The Cleveland Browns, America's team. Cleveland, Ohio, America's city. Cleveland. Nice win. I don't care if the Panthers are reeling. Nice win. Nice bounce back for Baker Mayfield. And 3G Greg Williams? Is there really a conversation as to whether or not that guy should get that job full-time? I think there is. I don't think he'll get it, but I think there's a conversation there. They're playing hard for this guy. They're winning for this guy. Affect the head. Affect the scoreboard. Affect the bottom line. At fake K. Winslow tweets, the Browns are in the hunt? So am I. So be careful or I might accidentally shoot you. Sign Bob Knight? Fake Kellen Winslow, even for you. Bob Knight, he once shot a guy accidentally hunting. That'll happen. Especially if you hunt with Bob Knight, I guess. Stuck nuts in. We were in the hunt too. Signed Jared, Brett, and Potsy. Hashtag Dilla. Brett Favre goes back to pass. He pumps. Hey, y'all, watch this. Now he fires. Ah. Can't believe what I'm seeing right now. We got two more. Let's go. Come on, Jared. Come on, Jared. Bill Peters is my guest. Bill, it's really nice to have you on. How are you? Very good, Jim, and yourself? Good. In fact, I'm great, Bill. Nice to visit with you. Let me ask you, you're more than a quarter of the way through the season. You're in first place in the Pacific. I know you dropped a tough one to Edmonton yesterday, but overall, what do you make of the start that your team's gotten off to? Well, we're happy with where we're at, and we're happy the way we're trending. We're getting better all the time. We're getting better every time the calendar clicks off into a new month. So that's what's encouraging for me. You know, you hear coaches talk about the process all the time. And uh, we're getting better. Our specialty teams are getting better. Our, both our goaltenders are playing well right now, and our young guys are improving. And I give a lot of credit to our veteran guys who have led the way and uh, have been great examples for our young guys. Calgary head coach Bill Peters, my guest. Now, when you were introduced as the Flames' new head coach, one of the things you talked about was the fact that when you're coaching or you're playing for a Canadian team, there's just a different feel. There's a different buzz. How would you describe that buzz, and then how much does that mean to you? Well, it means a lot, actually. We're fortunate, you know, there's seven uh, teams in the, in Canada and a passionate country for the sport of ice hockey, obviously. And, uh, you know, Calgary and Alberta in general, it's hockey country. You know, we're playing on a hockey night in Canada, lots, uh, Sportsnet, Rogers Hockey, uh, and it's just, it's exciting. And, and the fans hold you accountable. They know uh, when you're playing well and working hard, they're into the game. The atmosphere in the building's electric. And uh, I think it helps. I think it gives the players extra juice. Yeah, that's how you want it. That's exactly what you want. Now, you also talked about how you felt that this roster was one that was built to win in the modern game. How would you describe the modern game? And then what kind of players are you looking for? What do you need? Well, you got to be able to skate. you got to be able to skate. You look around the league, all the teams are having success. They play a very up-tempo game. Their D are able to transport the puck, and they are able to go back and get it and move it. Um, you know, the trend in our game has been the smaller puck moving D. You don't have to be 5'10 to move the puck. You can still be a bigger man, but you have to be able to have vision and skill on the back end to get the puck up to your forwards and get the game going. And then our D is very active in the rush part of the offensive attack, and I think that's the way you have to play. 
Flames head coach Bill Peters joining us. Now, you played for Mike Babcock at Red Deer College, and then you were with him in Spokane, and then three seasons as an assistant in Detroit. I had him on the show last week. I've got so much respect for him. What was it like to work with him, and what was your biggest takeaway from that time with him? Well, you know, I had a lot of fun uh, playing for him in Red Deer College, working with him uh, along the way in junior hockey and then in the National Hockey League. Um, just a good man, good family man, obviously a real good coach, but you learn a lot from him both on and off the ice uh, he just treats people the right way he's very direct uh, very organized hard-working driven guy he uh, he leads by example and uh, he's had success at every level and it's uh, no surprise to me you know Bill, when you talk about him being direct guys who play for you talk about the fact that you're honest even if it's something that they do not want to hear you're going to be forthright you're going to give it to him straight it sounds pretty simple and it sounds pretty basic but how important is it to have that kind of relationship with your players well, I think it's real important. Um, you know what? It's just, a, and it goes both ways. If they're not happy with something, come and see me. Uh, communicate with me. Communication's huge. But be careful, too, uh, to a certain degree, if you've got thin skin, because you're going to hear the truth, and it's going to be, it's gonna be very, uh, very factual. But obviously, we're trying to make players, too. As coaches, we're trying to make players. We're trying to set them up into situations to succeed so they're successful individually to allow us to be successful collectively. Guys want direction. Guys want to be held accountable. And uh, it's our job as coaches. Sometimes those are hard meetings, but we have to do that. That's part of our job. Bill Peters joining us. You know, if you go back to April at the start, it was a wild few weeks. You stepped down as Hurricanes head coach. Then you were hired by Calgary. Then you went to Europe for the World Championships. Then you filled out your staff with the Flames. And somehow, someway, you managed to squeeze in a vacation with your wife. All of that in about five weeks' time. <laughs> what was that stretch like, and how did you manage that? Well, I was busy, I'll tell you what. I lived out of a suitcase for a while there. I grew a little old at the end. And we mixed in buying a house here in Calgary at that time, so that was good. And then we took in the Calgary Stampede for a day or two. So there's a whirlwind of activity, but all worth it. We're settled in now and real happy to be where we are here in Calgary. What was the Calgary Stampede like? World-class, great event. Have you ever been? No, I have not. That's why I'm asking. Tell me. You gotta, well, you got to do it. It's got to be on everybody's bucket list, and you got to do it. you got to make it happen. And uh, a lot of fun, boy. There's, there's a little bit of everything. Great live entertainment, great music, uh, lots of activity going on, and the city's just a buzz. Calgary is in first in the Pacific Division. They're at home Wednesday night against Philadelphia. Their head coach, Bill Peters, my guest. Bill, great to visit with you. I appreciate that jungle debut. Really nice to have you on the show. I hope we can do it again. I'd love to. Thanks for having me, Jim. Good night now!